I'm going to invite you to John chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10 is where we're going to be together as we continue through our series, The Gospel of John. Uh, and John 10 is sort of the, a conclusion section for the Gospel of John. So it's a, it's really one of the pinnacle chapters of the Gospel of John. If you uh, talk to people about some themes that they may know about John, most likely, if anyone's familiar with this book, chapter 10 is one of those chapters. You may not be able to recall the exact chapter, but you know this is the chapter that Jesus talks about himself being the good shepherd. This is a a very powerful section of Scripture, and this this section of Scripture comes at at a conclusion point in in Jesus' ministry, and the conclusion point is at the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. We have been uh, at this feast. This is a week-long feast. We have been at this feast since John chapter 7. And John chapter 10 is the conclusion of this feast. And when you read the Gospels, one of the interesting things, if you ever engage any of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any of the Gospels, uh, one of the interesting things you'll see in, in, in those books is that Jesus' life is really just, just very quick snapshots described to Christ's life. You really don't get a whole lot about Jesus' early years of his life. You get his birth. You get one, one story in the Gospels about him getting lost at, a, at the temple when he was a kid. But other than that, all of Jesus' uh, what's recorded about Jesus is really his public ministry, the last three and a half years of his life. Uh, that's really what the Gospels contain. And John tells you why at the end of the Gospel of John. He, he says he writes particular stories about Jesus so that you can believe in him and have life and life for eternity. That's, that's his desire for John. So John's not just picking out random stories that he thinks about Jesus and kind of telling you, telling you these stories as he can recollect from his old age, you know, some of the things he encountered with Christ. John's very very intentional types of stories he's sharing with you about Jesus. It's not just pulling these out of memory. He's, he's communicating something important about Christ that he wants you to recognize. But when you get to the, when you're reading the gospel of John, you kind of go through his life pretty quick through ministry, but then you get to this feast of booths or this feast of tabernacles. And it's really in, in this section of scripture, it's kind of like John hits the pause button and for several chapters just records the course of events in Jesus's life. And this does not happen again until the end of Jesus's life. When you get to uh, John chapter really 13, um, John again slows down at the end of Christ's life. And I think Jesus, uh, in the life of Jesus, when John is sharing here, the reason John chooses to do this is because he sees that these moments related to the Feast of Tabernacles as really being the defining moment that that puts the stamp on what's going to happen to Jesus. Because this is where Jesus has clearly declared for us his identity. He's demonstrated it to us. And he's even used pictures of Jewish worship for it. And what I mean is uh, Jesus at the end of John, if you remember John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus declared himself just plainly. He says, I am the I am. They asked Hey, Jesus, if you remember at the end of John 8, he's talking about Abraham and, and they look at Jesus like, how do you know Abraham? Abraham died years ago. How could you even know Abraham? And, and then Jesus gives that statement before Abraham was, I am. And that phrase, I am, is a declaration of his deity. It's, it's the name of God in the Old Testament. And the response of the Jews were, was, it was to immediately pick up stones to throw at Jesus to kill him. So Jesus is clearly giving this declaration of who he was, right? I am God. Uh, the I am statements really pick up in, in John chapter 8, he does it twice, and then John chapter 10, he does it twice again. The I am statements, I am the door, I am the shepherd, he's, or the good shepherd, he's going to do that today, we'll see. So his identity is very clearly portrayed here, right? 
And, and then he demonstrates that by, by his healing hand. It's a messianic mark. We talked about this uh, a little bit last week that he heals the blind man. He, he heals the man at Bethesda, at the pool of Bethesda. And it's, it's a mark of, of who the Messiah was. And so he demonstrates that. And then in the, in the same time period, when Jesus is at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, he uses the illustrations of the feast the, that God commanded his people to do to say, this is a foreshadowing of me. Remember, this is where Jesus called himself the light of the world. When, when the Jews are doing the torch dance to light the, light the temple during the Feast of Booths, every night they would light the temple. And Jesus is saying, this light is a, is a picture of me. I am that light. All of this is intended to point to me. Or during the same feast, there was a pouring out of water at the drink offering. And as the water is being poured out, Jesus comes in and he says, I am the living water. All of this is a picture of, of me. So Jesus is very clearly saying, look, the temple worship, it's all about me. It's a, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of everything that I will fulfill in, in your life. And so this declaration of Jesus is being made known. And, and you see at the end of John chapter 9 that really the one person that responds to it is the blind man. And it told us that John, in the end of John 9 that he is the one that worships Jesus. This is Jesus' desire for us. Jesus doesn't stop him from worship, but Jesus permits him to worship because Jesus is, is God. And this section of scripture, very powerful in what it communicates to us about Christ and the significance uh, of who he is so that we don't miss it, right? And this also becomes sort of the, the death nail for Jesus because, <clears throat> um, I guess pun intended there, but, but, but Jesus, this, this becomes a place where the Pharisees really decide that, yeah, we've got to put an end to this guy. In fact, in, in, in John chapter 7, verse 25, they start talking about the, the death of Jesus and that it continues on. They talk about the death of Jesus uh, nine times within really starting in chapter 5 and then in chapter 7, then it continues on from there. They're just focused on killing Jesus to the point where at the end of chapter 7, the crowds just walk away from Christ. They see him as really a, a, a dividing person in, in their culture and to follow Jesus, there's risk to that. And so people are distancing themselves from Christ. You see it again in, in John 9 with the blind man that, that this man's claiming Jesus, but even his parents reject their own son because they don't want to be ostracized from their Jewish synagogue. Their Jewish community to follow Jesus was to put you on the outskirts of, of community life. And so they rejected Jesus in order to align with their community. So, so this section of scripture, the very, very defining moment for the people of Israel and where they stand with, with Jesus. And Jesus, in these last moments at the Feast of Tabernacles, chooses this one last illustration to help us understand who he is really. Um, following after him, there's risk. As a Christian, that should be true for us. Like As Christians, we should recognize there is a cross to bear before us but also there is a hope beyond us. In Christianity and pursuing Jesus, it, it can cost you. In fact, it should cost you because you let go of the things of this world to grab hold of the things of God. So there is a cross before you. There is a cross to bear, but there is a hope that endures beyond. And Jesus wants us to see the sweetness of that in who he is. In John chapter 10 he chooses this illustration. John 10, verse 1. Look at it with me. 
It says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep listen to his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts all his own sheep outside, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. However, a stranger... They simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So what Jesus is doing in this story is very easy to pick up on. He's contrasting the leadership that Israel has been under versus his own. And he's picturing himself as the shepherd and the others as imposters. And and if you just think about the last couple of chapters, you see why Jesus is to this point. Chapter 8 At the end of chapter 8, he called himself the I am. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus flees. They cast Jesus out. At the end of chapter 9, you have one person choosing to follow Jesus. It's the blind man. And what do they do to the blind man? They cast them out. And on the backdrop of that story, Jesus then gives this story. I am the shepherd. Everyone else who's tried to lead your life, they've, they've been an imposter. They've not come for you for the right reasons. I, I am the true voice that you need to listen to. I am the one that's called here. And, and, and Jesus wants to distinguish who he is in our lives versus all other voices. Superiority of Christ made known for, for you. So Jesus in the story is contrasting uh, all false shepherds or all other uh, imposers in this moment in the life of the sheep versus himself. But then in addition to that, he's comparing you (laughs) to sheep. Jesus is the shepherd and you are sheep. And I think Jesus in the story is very intentional in choosing this illustration. I don't think he's just saying, you know what, I guess if I had to just compare you guys to something, uh, maybe we'll just talk about a sheep for a minute. I think Jesus is being very intentional in the way he's, he's illustrating this. And, and you don't have to know a lot about farm animals to know something about sheep, right? I mean, um, sheep are probably not the most important animal, or I mean, impressive animal, I should say, in the farm, right? I mean, you think about, when you think about, uh, what a sheep represents. Uh, it's typically, you know, there's, there's this gentleness about sheep. If you want to count something, you don't want to count, you know, dinosaurs or bears or, you know, things like that. Those are scary. You want to count sheep because they're, they're, they're sort of this vulnerable type animal. It's very comforting. You could just see yourself laying your head down on a sheep. You can't see yourself laying your head down on a bear, right? I mean, sheep are just kind of seen in those, as those gentle animals. And, and the reason is because, well, they're dumb, right? I mean, that's, let's just be honest. They're just, they're not, they're not real impressed in, in uh, their trivia, right? <laughs> sheep, sheep uh, they're in a class of their own. They're, they're slow, they're, they're defenseless, uh, they're, they're vulnerable, they're, they're innocent. Uh, they really, they lack the ability uh, to care for themselves. They can't survive on their own. In fact, if I just showed you a, a little picture here, this is a, this is a picture of a, a sheep that came out of, maybe, is it pop-up, Caleb? Well, Maybe not. There's a, a, a sheep in New Zealand known as Shrek. And Shrek happened to wander away from its fold. And Shrek survived for six years on its own. Now, 
when, anytime a, a sheep survives more than a day on its own, it's like a miracle. But here, this happens to be one sheep that in particular survived on its own. And, and this sheep survived by finding a cave. It just lived in a cave in New Zealand for, for six years. And finally, after six years, they located the sheep. And when they located the sheep, there it is. After six years, they located the sheep. When they locate the sheep, the sheep weighs, the wool on the sheep weighs 60 pounds. 60 pounds of wool on the sheep. I look at the sheep and I wonder, when you're just a big giant cloud like this, like how do you even bend over to eat anything? I don't, like what, about this much of the sheep's nose can maybe touch the ground. Like how does the sheep even get food? And how do the sheep even see to get food? Like this is miracle sheep. And this is like Jesus saying to us, you know what it's like for sheep to go on its own? This is what it's like, don't do this. I let one sheep that happened to make it for six years. There's been no sheep on its own that's made it for six years. This is the miracle sheep just to show with us why Jesus is using such an illustration. Sheep are not made to live, to live on their own. If sheep don't have the right person leading them, sheep die. That's the point, right? But if sheep have a shepherd that loved them, sheep thrive. And this is why Jesus chooses the illustration, right? It's not to get to the end of this and say, the thing, are you telling me the whole point of what Jesus is saying is just to say to me that sometimes I can be dumb? That, that's not the point, okay? Um, the point is for us to recognize how good the shepherd is. Like if we read a story like this and we think the point is about us or we really read the Bible at all and think the main point is about us, we've missed the point. The point is really about the goodness of who he is. And when sheep that are made for him connect to him, Rather than die, we thrive. And Jesus is using this illustration for our lives. In fact, um, in verse 3, he highlights, I want to highlight just a couple things for you that Jesus says for us as it relates to his his leadership in our lives. Jesus, what it's saying in verse 3 is Jesus really leads us, he leads us intimately. And it says this, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep listen to his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. And that's a special thought in connection to thinking uh, about all other people that have come before the sheep to try to take the sheep. So you look at the, the thieves or the robbers that are described in, in verse 1. Um, when they come before the sheep, they really don't give a rip about your name. They don't want the best for you. They want you for them. And they're not going to take time to really care about the intimacy of who you are. But Jesus does. When we read in terms of the good shepherd in this passage of scripture, it's not to say generically that's just who he is, but specifically for you, this is who he is. And how do we know it? Well, he knows each of his sheep by name. Jesus knows you personally. Jesus cares about you intimately. In fact, different than the robber who wouldn't even take time to give you a name, you're just a thing to him. Jesus has named you. Name in Jesus' day was more than just granting someone uh, something to call them by. It was an identity. In fact, in Jesus' day, the mortality rate of children was considered so high that some families wouldn't name their children until they were two years old because they didn't want to give a name to a child they thought might not make it. But Jesus gives you a name. 
Because Jesus cares about you. He calls his own sheep by name. And then it says this about you, about you in the second part of the verse. And leads them out. And he leads them out. Jesus isn't just seeing you as a part of a crowd. He sees you. And his desire is to lead you. And that's, that's a beautiful thought. Because maybe, maybe if we just more contrast a little bit from the way uh, in Jesus' day they herd sheep versus how people might herd sheep in Australia. Like in Australia, you get a dog and the dog drive the sheep. But in Jesus' day, the shepherd doesn't drive the sheep. He gets in front of them and he leads them. He calls them because they know his voice. Because they've had intimate time with the shepherd. And they have opportunity to follow him. It's the beauty of the way Jesus desires to guide your life. He doesn't just push you out in the front. He already has walked the path before you. That's the beauty of Jesus when we trust in him as a sheep. We, we want to know, how do, I, how do I know that my tomorrow is secure? And the answer is because he's already been there. God's timeless. He's eternal. He already knows what tomorrow holds because he's already been in tomorrow. And therefore, when he calls you, he's calling you where he's already been on your behalf. And that's the kind of leadership Jesus brings into your life. It's a, it's a beautiful contrasting of, of, of what the people of Jesus' day, the leaders of Jesus' day, are, are demanding of them versus what Jesus desires for them. But then you look in verse 6, and verse 6 it says, but we don't understand. We don't understand. So, so Jesus, in the next section of this verse, in verse 7... By the way, if you have notes, uh, there's a couple blanks in your notes. The uh, first blank was, he calls his sheep by name. Second blank, he leads them out. And, and then in verse 7, Jesus starts to reiterate this story again. So they say, verse 1 to 5, Jesus, we don't understand. And Jesus says, okay, let me, let me just dive a little bit deeper in this. I, I understand maybe this is the first time you're hearing it, you're not fully grasping it. But I really want you to understand this because this moment that I've spent with you at the Feast of Tabernacles, this has become the moment where the hatred for me has been so fueled that it's going to lead to my death. And knowing this is leading to my death, I want this illustration to be on your mind. <laughs> so verse 7, this is what he says. Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. We'll talk about that in just a minute. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, in this illustration, he gives one of those declarations of the I am, which is the present, the ego I me, the identity of God. I am God, and the way I'm like God is I am a door, right? So Jesus is saying, I'm not just the shepherd. I am, I am the pen that protects the sheep. I am the door. Into this pen, there is only one way in and one way out. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, look, if you, if you belong to me, I am God and nothing's getting to you. I am God and I am going to protect you. 
I, I, I am in charge of the, the, what goes around your life. And, and because it's me and because I'm God, what I, what I say about you and what I do for you, it goes. No one can mess with that. If someone wants to come to this door and try to steal you, they've got to come through me. And they're not getting through me because I am who I am. I am God. So when I talk about being your shepherd, it becomes this place where you can rest comfortably in my arms. I encompass you. And he contrasts this thought to the idea of Satan. And Satan's plan, it says, is to kill, steal, and destroy. Really, he's like, he's saying to us, look guys, there's really two paths in this world. You can belong to me because you were created for me. But if you don't belong to me, you belong to the enemy. And here's the plan of the enemy, to still kill and destroy. Now, knowing that about Satan is important, but I would say seeing that lived out through Satan, it doesn't always happen. And what I mean is this, no, we're not dumb guys. Like if someone comes to you and says, look, I got a plan for your life. It's all about stealing, killing and destroying you. You would say, I'm going to choose a different path. (laughs) And if there's only two, I'll go with the good shepherd but I'm not going to go with this path, right? And the, the point is to say this. Um, Satan doesn't make his plan for your life obvious. But this is his ultimate goal. All Satan has to do to get you there is just twist the truth a little bit. And that's what he did in the Garden of Eden. He just questioned what God said. Adam and Eve don't eat of the fruit. Serpent shows up. Did God really say? Did he really? Are you so sure? The twisting of the truth, just a little lie. And what does it lead to? Still kill and destroy. But what it says in this passage, in the very end of verse 10, is Jesus' desire isn't just to give life but to give abundant life. God's desire for your life is not just life, but abundant life. This this idea of abundant means above and, and beyond. Whatever you can conceive of what God desires for you is really unimaginable for what God can do and will do for your life. It's, a, it's abundant life. Now I will say... In John chapter 10, I don't think Jesus' closest disciples completely understood the picture of what this meant. I think as you read throughout the New Testament, you see the theology of abundant life articulated a little better uh, um, and more deeply along the way. But I don't think they fully grasped what abundant meant because they didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying to this point. Jesus wants them to understand, so he just simply describes what he wants to offer them as abundant life. But I would say this, probably the best New Testament word to understand what this idea of abundant means is is this idea of adoption. What the Bible says is when you belong to God, you're, you're adopted into his kingdom. 
You're adopted as a child. Not everyone can call themselves as a child of God. That, that's how John 1 starts in verse 12. But as many as received him, to him he gives the right to become the children of God. You're not born a child of God, but you can become a child of God by your faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf through the cross. And when you embrace Jesus in this way, then what Jesus delivers to you is life abundant. And, and the idea of that abundant life is experienced through your adoption. There's this book written by a man named J.I. Packer. He was a, a theologian. I think he, he actually died this past year. Um, he was, I think, somewhere in his 90s when he passed. But he wrote a book called Knowing God. It's considered a Christian classic. It's in the top 50 for Christian books ever written. And, and in that book, um, I remember this because it just seared into my brain. But uh, I have the 1993 copyright edition, if anyone has that. But in that book on page 207, he says something um, that's just stuck with me. He says, you know, in, in church history, there was a time when justification was the theme of the church. And what he means is, uh, in church history, about, uh, about the 11th century to about the 16th century, the focus of the church had, had gone away from justification by faith alone. It wasn't emphasized in the body of Christ. Some, in some places, it wasn't even taught. And this man named Martin Luther came along and he highlighted that thought, justification by faith alone. And it revolutionized the church. It, it put a passion back under the, the rear end of God's people to share the beauty of the gospel, justification by faith alone. And what that meant is, it's the idea that we don't earn our salvation, that Jesus paid for it all because of what Jesus has done. We're justified in him, justified by faith. We put our trust in what Jesus has accomplished and we're declared right. We're justified because of Jesus, what Jesus has done on our behalf. A beautiful thought, Right? That I'm saved because of what Christ has done. And that's important. That's the message of the church. That's what evangelism is built on. That's the gospel, right? I, I get to go in this world and say, I'm loved by God, not because of what I've done, but because God loves me. He set me free. He's pursued me in my sin. I have new life in him. I am justified. Jesus went to the cross while I was a sinner and he died for me. And I didn't make myself lovable for him. He loved me despite my sin and he sets me free. That's justified. It's beautiful. But it doesn't end there. We're also adopted. We're set apart. We're declared as children of the king. And therefore given inheritance in the kingdom. And now this means for me things like not just, not just that I'm saved from, from sin or rescued from hell. But it also means I have a position in Jesus for eternity. I'm a child of the king. At any moment, I can talk to him. I mean, think about what, what a gift that is. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, they had to go to a temple to worship and they had to depend on a priest to intercede for them. But now in the New Testament, we're called priests because we've been adopted by God. And at any moment, anytime, anywhere, I can come before the presence of that king and just meet with him. What a privilege. I find some people, when they, when they talk about prayer, 
typically people ask me questions about prayer and, and the basis of the question works like this. How can I pray to get God to do what I want? Like, how can I make God my puppet? Because I know there's this thing called prayer and I want God to do things for me. So teach me the secret to praying better to get God to do what I want. That's typically what we, some of the questions people ask about prayer. But, but I think before we even begin like that, the best attitude to carry towards prayer is just to stop and think, have you ever considered what a gift it is to even say right now in this moment, you can bow your heads before your king and be in front of him? What a privilege to be known by God. He knows your name. And you can talk to him. Not only that, you can hear from him. And that's what his word is. It's his love letter to you written in his blood that you you can hear from him. The king who gave it all that you could be adopted and belong and have a relationship, you can know intimately about him because he's revealed himself. John 10, that's why we're looking at this, right? How good are you as a good shepherd? You've been adopted to, to belong. And his spirit rests within you. In fact, in, in Romans, look at this, Romans chapter 8, I'm talking about this idea of adoption. It says this, but you have received a spirit of adoption, meaning God put his spirit in you. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God dwelled in the temple. In the New Testament, you have become that temple. God's presence dwells in you. That's what adoption has brought to you. That God's presence dwells in you. That's why you can meet with God anytime, anywhere, because God's presence is with you. That's the beauty. When his church gets together, we're carrying God's presence as a community for his glory. That, that uh, we can ignite a passion in each other and find ourselves uh, joyously lifting up the, the glory of God. That when we walk out of this building, we carry that joy with us. Like You have received a, a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry, Abba, Father. This, this word of intimacy in the shepherd because... He knows us and we know him and having the the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as the sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Let me, let me just contrast why I put these two verses here in adoption. In verse 15, he's saying, look, being adopted, you have the spirit of God right now. Right now, that's the beauty of his adoption. That's, that's the abundant life, that the fruit of the Spirit be made known in your life. And not only that, in verse 23, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters in God. Meaning, not only do you have a piece of your adoption right now, but, but in the future, your eternal adoption will continue and you're waiting to experience the rest of what that adoption is all about. That is the abundant life. It begins both now in Jesus and for all of eternity. That's, that's what Jesus is describing in this, pa- in this passage of Scripture that you have abundant life in him. The thief is about taking. He doesn't care about your name. He isn't giving his life for your name. He's, He's taking your life for his name. But Jesus is about giving. And Jesus is about giving abundantly. Uh, we can look at this illustration Jesus gives about Satan and himself as being the only two options, and we can say to ourselves, I mean, I mean that's good, but isn't that a little bit overboard? Gee, I mean, Christmas, think about it. It's just Satan and Jesus, isn't that just a little bit much? I'll say, yeah, it is, unless it's true. And if it's true, because I don't think we can emphasize it enough. Jesus is putting the stakes pretty high here because Jesus understands what's at stake here. 
We're talking about your soul. We're talking about the God of everything who has given his life for your soul. How can you make little of something like that? Or why would you want to, right? And this illustration is as powerful according to what Jesus is saying. But reality is we don't like to feel vulnerable. Because that's what this passage is saying about you as a sheep. There is this place of choosing what to follow. Do you want to fall into the hands of Satan? Or Jesus? When you think about your soul in the middle of that, yeah, it's a place of vulnerability, but it's also a place where you're called to abundant life. And so Jesus then answers this one more time. How good is the good shepherd? Verse 11, he goes on to describe um, one more time how, how a good shepherd can be seen in his life in this story. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters the flock. He flees because he is a hired hand and does not care about the sheep. We can look at this section. Let me just ask it like this. If sheep can be so foolish, right? If sheep might be such a bad animal in this situation, why have sheep at all? Why have sheep? And Jesus is really answering that question here in these, these couple of verses. Verse 12 and 13, he answers from the hired hand's perspective. And in verse 11, he answers it from, from his perspective. Why, why then have sheep, Jesus? We're capable of just making decisions that, that lead to destruction. Um, it's kill, death, destroy all you. Why, why have sheep? Here's the hired hand's answer. Pound for pound, the, the most valuable animal you could have in Jesus' day is the sheep. Its wool is worth something. Its meat is worth something. There's nothing on a sheep that went to waste. Pound for pound, the most valuable animal that you could have was the sheep. And that's exactly how the hired hand viewed the sheep. Not what I have to give, but what I want to get. And so the sheep for the hired hand was just a tool for their own kingdom and glory. But the minute adversity came, the hired hand wasn't sticking around because the hired hand was only in it for his convenience. And so when a wolf would come, the hired hand would flee. In fact, in first century, the Mishnah actually had a law written that said, uh, legally, if a wolf comes to attack sheep and you're just a hired hand, if it's just one wolf, the law said you actually had to stay and fight the sheep or fight the wolf uh, because you, a hired hand could easily deter one wolf. But the, it went on to say, but if it's two, two wolves, then, well, let them have the sheep. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so, so for them, for them in that moment, it wasn't about the sheep. It was about them. They're only there based on what they could get. But not Jesus. Look what it says in this, this opening verse about Jesus. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Religion will call you to do something so that God will love you. In this passage, in Christianity, God is laying down his life because he loves you. What I'm saying is, it's not about what he gets. It's about what he gives because it's his nature. Hired hand is only doing it because of what he gets from you. But Jesus, I am the good shepherd. And you, you want to know why? 
because I can give him my life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's not about what he gets from you. It's about who he is. Why do you have sheep, Jesus? Well, it's not about who you are. It's about who he is. And God is a God of love, and love is about giving itself away. That's why when you look at the story, I say the point of the story is not about you. It's really about him. And when you see who he is, then you see the goodness of why we would even want to follow when you think about this, this idea of love, love, in biblically speaking, is not efficient. Love is extravagant. Love is full of grace. And Jesus is giving himself for you, not because of you, but because of him. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life by sheep, or for the sheep. Let me go on very quickly from here. But in verse 14, says this, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just the father knows me. I know the father and I lay my life down for him. So here's what Jesus is saying to you, like guys, uh, and this is the last blank in your notes is, is I know my own. What Jesus is saying here is more than he just knows your name. Jesus intimately knows you. Jesus is talking about relationship with you. You get relationship with creator God. Not, not just you know God, not just you know about God, but think about this. God intimately knows you. God's desire is to be known by you and to know you. It's a beautiful picture of the goodness of Jesus. And then verse 16, it goes on and says this. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will not listen to my voice and they will, will become one flock with one shepherd. Um, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back. This commandment I have received from my father. You know, what Jesus is saying here is this, because I'm the good shepherd, I'm going to lay my life down for the sheep. That's how you know I'm the good shepherd. He's, he's giving this foreshadowing of what's ultimately going to come for his disciples so that when the disciples get to a hard moment, they still trust. You see in verse 19 and 20, they start to argue over Jesus in this moment, but Jesus wants to understand, like, I'm about to die for you. That's going to be a hard moment for you as sheep. But just keep trusting because I'm a good shepherd. Keep trusting because I'm a good shepherd. Now, I'm going to close with this illustration and say this. Um, there was a story in, in a book called Moody Antidotes of, of sheep in Scotland. And there was a doctor writing about sheep in Scotland. And he said this about the sheep. He said, you know, when the sheep get into the highlands, the sheep love to jump off the cliff to the grass in the rocks. They, they, they love the, the grass that grows in the rocks in the highland. And they'll even jump off cliffs in order to get to this grass. They'll jump down 10, 12 feet to get to this grass. And they'll just eat this grass because they, they love the grass. It's a sweeter grass. But there's one problem that the sheep don't consider. And that's how are they going to get back? <laughs> and the sheep will jump off these cliffs and they will, they'll eat the grass 10, 12 feet below them. And, and the shepherd has to just allow the sheep to partake of it. The shepherd can't go get the sheep when they jump down this cliff, at least not right away. Because the shepherd knows that if he tries to get the sheep right after they've jumped down the cliff and while they're eating that grass, the sheep have a lot of strength. And the sheep are so dumb that rather than let the shepherd get them, they'll freak out and jump off the cliff to their death. So what the shepherd does is the shepherd has to just sit and watch the sheep. And when the sheep have eaten all the grass and now they've gone days without any more food, the sheep start to deteriorate in the strength. 
And it's when they're weak that the shepherd will lower a line down to tie it around the sheep to hoist them back up to safety. And what I say, guys, is, or what I mean, I should say, is we're a lot like that, aren't we? (laughs) We see the goodness of God, but we think about the sweetness of the grass. And sometimes coming to Jesus, we, we freak out so much that we would rather jump to our death than trust in the one who's good, the one who cares for us. Let me just ask you, if you look back over the last week of your life, what kind of sheep were you? Were you a sheep that understood what it meant to be in the beauty of abundant life in Jesus? Did you seek after the one who cares for you? Did you know him in his word? Did you seek him in prayer? Did you trust him when you felt like you were hanging on the side of the cliff? Did you see him as good? That's Jesus' desire for you in this passage. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.